Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My guest today is Stephen Gunn, and today we are going to discuss British military during the 1600 and the height of the British Empire. And I want to ask, how did you come across studying exactly this era and the military history of it? Uh, well, I, I studied uh, a lot of 16th century history, uh, first of all, at school. Uh, a lot of British people study 16th century history at school. Um, uh, I've been writing for my most of my career about the political and the social history of 16th century England, but I've always been quite interested in warfare uh, as part of that. Um, and I suppose I've had broader interests in military history, uh, probably since I was a small boy uh, reading C.S. Forrester's novels about Horatio Hornblower and making model airplanes and the kind of things small boys used to do in the 1960s and 70s. So um, this is uh, is putting the two together, I suppose, a, a broader interest in military history and uh, and an interest in the, the political and the social and, and the cultural history of, of 16th century England. So how do you go on about studying, before we get started, how do you go on about studying in British military history, especially in this era? Um, the, the documents that you have to use are quite numerous, but they're quite widely scattered. Um, so uh, th- there's always a, a temptation, I think, for historians, because the English state uh, was quite strongly established quite early in its history and it generated a lot of records there's a temptation to try and write all the history you can from the records of central government but actually what I've realized and I think what many people would argue is that you can't really understand government and society without also looking at lots of local records so you you need to go around um lots and lots of of different archives in different parts of of England and even indeed in other countries in order to get enough different um, uh, perspectives on uh, what was happening uh, in these wars in order to understand them from the point of view of the population at the time rather than just understanding them from the point of view of the king and the ministers around the king who were trying to organise the wars. Now, with Roman sources, it's quite the nature that they might be incredibly biased. Is that fair here as well in that the sources might not be accurate, accurate, that they may be biased? Well, it's certainly the case that the chroniclers writing at the time, uh, I suppose, understandably, wanted to write about things that had gone right for the English army and not so much about things that had gone wrong for the English army. On the other hand, even amongst the chroniclers, uh, there's quite a diversity because you have people writing Uh, predominantly in towns who are just interested in what's happening in their town and the news that's coming into their town about what's happening in wars in other countries. You have people trying to write a a, a, a national history that glorifies kings and looks back to 
the great military successes of the English in the past, particularly in the Hundred Years' War in the 14th and 15th centuries. But then you also have people that there's a marvellous man called um, uh, Ellis Griffith, who is a Welsh soldier uh, fighting in the uh, mostly in the English garrison in Calais uh, in northern France. Uh, And he just writes. It's meant to be a history of the world, but a lot of it is just about his life. Uh, And he keeps telling you about who his friends were in the army and what they thought of the officers commanding them and why the officers weren't any good and why the plans they were trying to follow were stupid plans and so on. So that that gives you more of a view from uh, from the lower ranks of what it was like fighting in, in these armies. That's kind of not interesting as well, you know, finding out what was, not just what it was like for the rich and the higher level, but also the common folks and the common soldier, right? Exactly. Although the interesting thing about him is that he regards himself as a professional. He knows what he's doing. He's a career soldier. Um, where, and, the, and, and so he is a bit disdainful of some of the officers. But in a way, he's even more disdainful of the recruits who are just pulled into the army for one season of fighting. And his view is basically they just want to go home again and they keep complaining that they're not having a nice, quiet sleep at home with their wife. And they, they can't be bothered to be proper soldiers in the way that he regards himself and his friends as being proper soldiers. So you get a sense of the, the different kinds of attitudes inside the army as well. Mm. Um, before we begin diving into the British military, I want to talk about, you mentioned it a little bit, but the state of the British military, if you could elaborate on what the state of the military was in the 16th century. Uh, one of the distinctive things about the English army in the 16th century is that it's very small. Uh, at least it's the permanent part of it is very small compared with the armies of powerful continental states. So um, France uh, or uh, the Spanish kingdoms or uh, even the, the Netherlands, um, they would have quite large uh, permanent standing uh, bodies of, of troops being paid all the time, paid out of regular um, tax revenues. The English state didn't have regular tax revenues, at least regular direct tax revenues like that. It had regular indirect taxation, uh, taxation on trade, which meant that it didn't have the money to have a large permanent army. Um, And so it's one of the distinctive things about the development of uh, English military resources in the 16th century that they have an increasingly large and increasingly permanent navy, uh, but they they have a fairly small permanent army. hundreds of men uh, at a time when the population of the country is uh, two or three million. Um, so uh, so the army uh, has a very small professional corps. And then when the kings want to raise an army, they then call on noblemen to bring the tenants from their estates. They call on towns to send drafts of men from their towns. And so you get a sudden, very large recruitment. Um, and it's something that contemporaries even on the continent comment on uh, that the kings of England don't have a big army but then when they call all their subjects to go and fight they can get lots of men to go and fight so obviously that's advantageous to the king from the point of view of the fact that he hasn't got to try to find the money to pay for a permanent army all the time it's disadvantageous because um, his soldiers don't have the experience uh, and they don't necessarily have the quality of, of equipment uh, and so on that uh, people serving more constantly in continental armies would have. Mm. And I want, you mentioned, I want to go that, the, the deeper into it. How would they join the military? Is it like in, in this country, Norway, we have one year of mandatory service. Was it the same back then? Or how many years of service was there in the British Army and how did they join 
it's the military. It's um, that there's no fixed length for how long you serve for. Uh, so there's a distinction between people who are, are permanent and professional, if you like, who would be in the army for um, five, 10, maybe 15 or 20 years. Someone like Ellis Griffith has a long career uh, serving in, 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 uh, in, in, in these permanent uh, garrisons. And those permanent garrisons that to begin with, they are only really uh, at Calais, uh, the last part of um, France held by by the English uh, and at Berwick, which is the big border town against Scotland in the north. As the 16th century goes on, then the English garrisons in Ireland start to become larger and larger. So that becomes the core of the permanent military establishment uh, in from the middle of the 16th century onwards. But we're still only talking about a few thousand men. We're not talking about large armies on, on a continental scale. Um, other uh, people would serve for one year or two years, as long as the war went on, they might well never serve again. Uh, so some people would have been uh, recruited by their landlord, uh, particularly, say, if they're a household servant of a leading military nobleman, they would go and fight with that military nobleman every time he goes off, sent off to command an army by the king. Um, uh, some people sent out by towns if they uh, quite enjoyed uh, spending um, a summer in the army would be prepared to go more than once, probably. Uh, but a lot of people seem to have gone once. And if they came home, they thought, right, that's my bit of military service done and it'll be somebody else's turn next time. Um, and there is a shift o over the course of the 16th century from a situation where uh, quite a lot of um, fit adult men seem to have thought, well, it was their duty to go and fight at some point. And certainly the government's view is that all men between 16 and 60 are liable for military service, although some of them uh, are too uh, uh, ill or too old um, to, to, to serve, but, they, but that they, in theory at least, all men between 16 and 60 should be able to go and fight. Um, in practice, as the 16th century goes on, you see uh, local authorities both in the countryside and in towns, tending not to send people who are um, uh, socially respectable and wealthy, but rather looking for people who they think are uh, local troublemakers or poor people who aren't really contributing much to the local economy uh, and so on, or indeed they're drafting people from prisons. So there is a drift downwards in the social standing uh, of the people being recruited as ordinary soldiers into the army, whereas uh, aristocrats, noblemen seem to have thought all the way through that it was their duty to go and fight and that they should uh, emulate their great ancestors in the past who had won these great victories against the French in the 14th and 15th centuries. Now, if you were poor and the king wanted a peasant and the king wanted a general large army, like you mentioned before, but did he have a choice back then? Or did you say, I don't want, I don't really want to? Can we do this another time, maybe? Was that even a choice, or did you have to go? Well, it, it, I think the social pressures to go were pretty strong. Um, so were you a coward if you didn't want to go, and if you stayed uh, at home? Well, well, maybe you were a coward. Desertion rates are, they're not enormous, but they're significant. So certainly uh, troops disappear between the point of being recruited in their village in England and getting to the port on the coast from which they're going to leave to go and fight on the continent. Um, once they're in France, it's harder for them to desert, but mm. they quite often mutiny. So English troops will behave rather in the ways that um, 
peasants will in a peasant rebellion where they say um, we're not trying to overthrow the whole army. We're just putting our demands in the way that other 16th century armies do. The Spanish army in the later 16th century is famous for having very organized mutinies. Um, and uh, so, so desertion and mutiny seem to be fairly common tactics for soldiers who just don't like the situation that they, that they find themselves in. Whether you could say... Um, how, how often would a mutiny be successful? And what happened if it wasn't successful? Well, it, it's it's very likely to be successful because enough of the if it, if enough of the army mutinies, then the then the commanders can't really do anything. Yeah, yeah. they haven't got anybody to to tell. So sometimes you have situations where part of the army will mutiny or at least will dispute orders, and another part will argue against it. Ellis Griffith tells this great story of. Um, Uh, a, a large group of soldiers chanting home, 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 because they want to give up on the campaign that they're on and just go home. And another group of soldiers who are have volunteered just to try to make money out of plunder because they because they uh, they don't really have a job back back in England. They're all chanting hang, 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 meaning that you people are, are, are betraying the army and you ought to be executed for it. So it's a bit like two football crowds chanting at each other or something. Um, so you have that that kind of um, that kind of dispute inside the army. Um, but obviously, if you're the commanders as well, if you've got a lot of troops who are just refusing to go where you want them to go, and you're all in the middle of hostile territory, you probably have to negotiate a way out of it quite quickly, which may well involve uh, agreeing at least in part to what the soldiers want to do. Was it was it difficult for a commander to get respect of the army, or what? But how do you get respect from the well, army? I think it probably varies, and it's interesting. Ellis Griffith again comments on how how different it is. He says there are some uh, noblemen who just shout at people and hit them and. Uh, behave tyrannically towards them when they're trying to make them do things. But there are others who uh, treat the troops under their leadership well and uh, try to try to persuade them and try to encourage them to, to do things well. And he obviously thinks the, what the, the, the officers who encourage people uh, are much better than the ones who just uh, shout at people and, 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 and try to hit them to, uh, to, to make them do what they're, what they're supposed to do. Um, so, um, So clearly there are different different styles of leadership, if you like, and some work work better than others. Um, and of course, you've got various incentives you can try to uh, apply. So, so clearly, uh, if they do manage to capture towns, for example, in France, then they'll plunder the towns. And so then the um, then the, the the troops are very excited about that. And Ellis Griffith, again, um, he always plays this uh, part of how he's the, the, the old veteran who just understands things. And he says, oh, well, the trouble with the English was they, they, were, they were so used to drinking beer that they'd never really seen wine before. So when we captured this town in France, they just all went for the wine and they were all helpless because they, they'd never really drunk wine. Um, so um, he uh, so, so so plunder is certainly an issue. Um And um, uh, that, but on the other hand, there there is potentially very um, fierce punishment for, for for desertion. You can be executed for for deserting, but of course, if enough of you mutiny, then you can't all be executed. So that's that's where the you wouldn't have an army left. Sorry, you wouldn't have an army left if you executed everyone. Well, exactly, exactly. 
And do we have any idea of what a basic camp would look, military camp would look like? I mean, I want to compare the Roman army again. There we know they had like a fortress and they had barracks. We know quite a lot about what a Roman camp would look like, but do we have any idea of what a British military camp would look like in this time? We certainly have ideas in that we've got um, paintings that are done uh, not long after uh, some of these campaigns. They Sadly, the best ones don't survive because they were wall paintings on a house which subsequently burnt down. But there are 18th century engravings uh, taken from those wall paintings. Um, and so they suggest that um, uh, there would be... Um, tents the majority of, of, of soldiers probably sleeping in tents at least until things got really out of hand again Ellis Griffith says uh, well the trouble with these raw recruits was they didn't understand how to build themselves a shelter if they hadn't got a tent um, but but clearly most of them had, had got tents um, they they do have problems with transport they're, they're always trying to hire more carts and wagons to carry all their stuff with them so they don't seem to be armies that move um, very lightly and rapidly really across the countryside they're, they're, they're trying to carry quite a lot of stuff not only the very heavy guns which inevitably move very slowly um, but also uh, tents and, and 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 things like that whether they fortify their camps is a bit harder to say um, most of the images we've got are of sieges rather than of um armies on the move across the countryside and obviously in sieges uh, everything's a bit more permanent because they're trying to uh, dig themselves um, uh, earth uh, um, retrenchments to, to to put the siege artillery in they're trying to build trenches so that they can get nearer to the walls of the place that they're they're besieging uh, and, um, and and so those do look more more organized and uh, and potentially a bit more fortified um, I'm not sure about English uh, commanders, but certainly commanders of this period on the continent, they're very interested in Roman fortification and they'll read books about um, uh, how the Romans fortified their camps. So that that Roman model is is out there and people are thinking about it at the time. Um, I did not want to draw a comparison to the Roman army. Um, was, like you said, the fortifications, was there a lot of permanent camp or was it like you said, like you said, they would really pack up because they had a lot of stuff to carry. But was there? How often would they can't be permanent set down? Like a year or two, maybe or longer? No, I mean there aren't permanent camps because there isn't a permanent army. So the so so this is a period before barracks, really, and so the the closest you would come would be garrison towns like um, Calais or um, or Berwick. Uh, or or some of the new uh, garrison forts being built in Ireland, uh, um, uh, um, Fort Protector uh, and uh, and places like that. Um, and uh, these are places, but but even there, where the soldiers mostly probably were just billeted on the on the ordinary people in the in the town. Um, so there isn't there isn't a sort of barracks life in quite the same way that there is in in armies from the later seventeenth century onwards. And um, let's say I'm a person from a, from a small town who had to go, been called in by King and my community to go fight for the army in a war. What would be the chance? What would the, would the, the training be like? Would I have training at all? The hair, was it like, here's a gun. It's, you know, don't point it at the enemy. Just pull the trigger. Was it, that kind of... it would depend what weapon you were using. Um, the English government in the 14th and 15th centuries and on into the 16th century 
is very obsessed with training people in archery. Uh, and there are various different reasons for that. One is that they're convinced that they won the great battles in the Hundred Years' War, uh, Crécy and Poitiers and Agincourt, uh, because of the, the, the ability of English archers. And to some extent, that's true. Um, there's also a problem, though, that the making of armour had improved since, particularly since the 14th century, but even since the 15th century, um, so that uh, English archery was less effective than it, than it had been in, in the 14th and 15th centuries. Um, so, that's, so, so there's a, a historical um, mythology around archery, which means that the government is very concerned to tell people that they must keep practising archery. In theory, every adult man is meant to practise archery every Sunday afternoon after church. Uh, and you can see uh, local communities building archery practice targets uh, and, uh, and, and keeping up areas of the village or town where people are supposed to go and do this practice. And indeed, some towns will even fine people for not going and doing their archery practice or not, not owning a bow and arrow, so they can't go and, and, and do it. So um, the other reason for that seems to be that the, the pull weight of the bows that they're using is extremely heavy, much heavier than, than, than a modern um, uh, Olympic bow or, or, or other kinds of competition bow. And therefore, they do need to practice regularly from a young age in order to be able to pull these very heavy bows, because you need the, the, the power of the bow in order to put to stand a chance of putting an arrow through any kind of uh, protection, whether, whether uh, steel plate, armour or, or, or um, leather protection or, or, or whatever. Um, so so, so, so that's another reason. And in fact, people looking, for example, at skeletons from the Mary Rose, the shipwreck that was that was raised uh, from off the English coast, uh, or looking at the burial pits from the Battle of Towton, uh, a battle in, in the civil wars in England in the 15th century, they can show that there are deformities of the um, shoulders and hip and elbow uh, in some of the skeletons, which suggest that people have been doing this archery practice with very, very heavy bows so if you're an archer you should have been practicing already and, and you won't need any more training um, if your um, archers work in combination with people either with uh, pikes uh, 16 foot 18 foot long pikes they're the, they're the, the, the newer weapon or the older English weapon uh, that would go with um, uh, bows would be bills which are um, really like um, large strong agricultural pruning hooks so they would be a lot shorter than a pike uh, but would have quite a complicated blade uh, on the end um, so if you're using one of those probably that's easier because it's more like using an agricultural tool that you might be used to on the other hand you might be expected to wear uh, more armor than you'd be used to. And again, there are signs that, for example, towns have what they call marching watches, where the men from the trade guilds dress up every year and march through the town in armour. And part of the point of that is just to get people used to putting armour on and walking in, in armour, because uh, otherwise it's, it's something that they're, not, that they're not used to. Firearms are, are a different problem because firearms are spreading through the English population in the 16th century, but spreading through. I wanted to ask about the, what is common with firearms at this point. Um, it's it, they're getting more common, 
uh, but they're pretty rare. I've, I've just been writing a conference paper on uh, accidents with firearms uh, in the 16th century. And um, it, it, we've got this big sample of accidental death uh, reports from the 16th century. And there are no accidental deaths with firearms recorded in the first 10 years of the century. Um, and then they rise slowly from being fewer than uh, one in 100 uh, accidental deaths up to being about one in 50 accidental deaths being with firearms by the 1580s and, and 1590s. So, so it was basically like with cars and seatbelts back in the early days then? Yeah, the, the, exactly. That they that the, as they spread, people get more used to them. But also, and I suppose it's a bit different from cars, the um the technology is changed Obviously. quite dramatically over the 16th century. So so to begin with, the big problem because they are um match locks, so that so they're lit. You 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 um, light the, um, uh, the 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 gun to discharge it with a lit uh, match of of, of string. Um, so the big problem there is you mustn't get any other flame near the gun. So if you put it down too near a candle, it will it will catch fire and go off. That's improved on from the mid 16th century by various firing mechanisms using flints what are called wheel locks or snap hances. Uh, so they're much safer. You can put them down n- near a candle as long as you're not too near a candle. On the other hand, uh, they're quite um, uh, uh, delicate mechanisms. So if you put them down too hard, then the mechanism will go off uh, and you'll shoot yourself. So we've got one man who goes into uh, uh, um, uh, an inn uh, in, um, I think it's in uh, Sirencester in, in, in Gloucestershire, and just puts his gun down on the table and shoots himself in the stomach because he's put the gun down slightly too hard and the vibration just sets off the, the gun. We've got somebody else who puts a gun on a table and a dog jumps onto the table and sets off the gun. So they the technology's changing, but each change in the technology provides a different set of problems with keeping yourself safe around these around these firearms. So those people do need training with, and there are signs that towns in particular, because guns seem to spread first in towns and then later in the countryside, um, people in ta- towns are trying to take some of their more able young men and, and, and train them to use guns in the way that they're meant to have been training them to use bows and arrows before that point. Now, you mentioned bow and arrows, and I want to ask, was crossbow a common use as well, or was it more bows? Crossbows are pretty rare. Um, They're used for, they're not really, well, the English don't really use them in war very much at all in the 16th century. They're used for things like uh, hunting birds. Um, But but the English, and in part it is this historical uh, mythology, I think the English just think their longbows are better than any other bow, and therefore all proper Englishmen should shoot a proper English longbow. Um, and uh, so they, uh, so you are, for example, by by legislation, um, you're not really supposed to own a crossbow. Every every man is supposed to own a longbow instead. Um, you are allowed to have a crossbow to defend your home because uh, it, it's. Oh, they can't take a crossbow away. Uh, well, uh, and then they changed the legislation to say you can have a crossbow or, in fact, you can have a gun to defend your home. The government wants to take my crossbow away. I'm not going to let them. Exactly. So it's the same. Uh, it's it's the same. Uh, it's it's the same idea. Um, and some of these accidents with guns, actually, you have um, guns which are kept loaded in the house and they say it's to defend the house in case burglars come. But then, of course, somebody puts down a candle too near to them and then they then they fire off. So. We talked about military training, but what, what was there discipline in the army as well? 
there is. Um, it's it's a bit hard to know exactly who's exercising the discipline because the the internal structures of the army are not always very clear. So whether there are there seem to be the equivalent of non-commissioned officers in in, in modern armies, um, but uh, exactly how that very small group leadership and command works is is, is one of the things that it's very hard to work out. Um, at, at the larger scale, um, there is discipline in the sense that there are ordinances of war issued, so they're printed sets of, of, of orders for how the army is to behave, um, and they're read out by the captains to the troops. How far those things are actually obeyed is, is harder to know, really. And there's some exemplary punishment, so our armies will uh, execute people who have plundered churches, for example. Um, but again, how much of that is going on without being punished is, is very difficult to tell. Um, I want to talk about because, uh, as you know, the empire was quite large at this point in time. It had colonies all over the world. And what was the chances if you were, like you said, there wasn't really any car- career soldiers, but was there any chance that you could be sent to like, maybe Canada or the Indian, an Indian or African colony when you said well- that's that's a later development, really. So, um, so the English, um, their their first um, successful colonies in North America don't happen until the seventeenth century, um, and they have a few. They start in the seventeenth century to have a few garrisons uh, in uh, on the coasts uh, of India, but the but the major expansion in India is not really uh, till the eighteenth century. So, at the period that we're looking at, um, the the place where this would happen mostly is in Ireland. Because uh, in Ireland, you, you've had a, a, a partially complete conquest from England uh, several hundred years before this. So you have areas nearer England and Wales that are mostly settled with people of uh, English or Anglo-Norman uh, origin. Um, and then you have areas beyond their control, uh, which are uh, still inhabited by the original uh, uh, Gaelic uh, inhabitants uh, of Ireland who still speak Gaelic are, are led by their uh, their own um, uh, chiefs uh, and 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 are um, raiding each other um, for uh, for cattle and and other economic resources, but also raiding the uh, English and Anglo-Norman settlers along the east coast. So the English government increasingly gets involved in. Um, setting up garrisons and providing troops to try to defend the English settled areas of Ireland against the Gaelic areas and slowly but surely uh, expand the areas of of English control. So if you're looking for um, a a long-term military career, um, but often under what look to English people pretty unpleasant circumstances, very wet, not very good food supplies, um, uh, enemies who don't necessarily fight in quite the way you're expecting because they don't fight like continental armies, uh, then Ireland is where you'll be facing those things as, a, as an English soldier. What was the behaviour of the soldier, if you were present to the elaborate on this? What was the behaviour of the soldier in the colony of Ireland? Um, well, the, as you can you imagine... Know, I also towards civil, civilians and, you know, yeah, in well, general... There are complaints about it, as, as, as you can imagine. Um, the um, one of the one of the great um, paradoxes, really, of the of the English situation in Ireland is that the English keep telling themselves and keep telling the Irish that they're the more civilized 
people and they're bringing civilization and enlightenment and the rule of law and so on to these Gaelic societies, which they claim don't don't have it, although what they have is a different kind of civilization and the rule of a different kind of law. Um, but um, the in order to impose English power, then some at least of the captains in Elizabethan Ireland start behaving in extremely lawless ways. So they will just take hostages and behead them and then order other people to come and see them uh, allegedly uh, marching up between a line of these severed heads in order to impress that that's the kind of brutal thing they'll do if you don't cooperate with them. Um, so uh, so English soldiers in dealing with the, with the Gaelic Irish are extremely brutal at times and indeed when the, the, the big war between uh, the, the, the Gaelic Irish and the English uh, at the end of uh, Elizabeth's reign is only uh, finished by the English when they start to adopt for um, scorched earth tactics, um, cause starvation amongst the population uh, and so on. So, so there are horrible atrocities done by the English against the, against the, the, the Irish in those circumstances, but simultaneously the um, uh, English and Irish inhabitants of the, uh, the, the, the English settled areas in the east of Ireland are also complaining about the behaviour of the troops because they say the kinds of things that troops, uh, that, that populations with troops billeted on them say all over Europe, that troops won't pay for their food properly and they won't pay for their drink properly and they keep demanding the best seat next to the fire when they're billeted on you and, uh, and so on. So, so the English uh, soldiers don't necessarily get on very well either with the people on whom they're uh, billeted, whom they're meant to be defending, or the people uh, out beyond the border against whom they're meant to be making war. Um how how would that I wanted to draw we just thought a little bit about this in the beginning, but I want to draw more elaborate again more on the British Navy and the state of the Navy. You mentioned that was more of the permanent side of the British Army. What was the Navy like? Yes, well the Navy is um is expanding quite dramatically across the 16th century. One of the reasons why it's more permanent, I think, is that, as is true of navies across 16th century Europe, in a sense, they have to be more permanent than armies, because if you uh, have a cannon, you can just leave it in a castle for a number of years, and it might need new wooden wheels and so on, but basically you, you can get it out and use it again. If you've got a ship, you can't just leave it in the sea for a few years because it will have rotted by the time you come back and try and use it again. So so ships need dockyards, they need constant upkeep. Um, and also, if they're going to sail anywhere, they need carefully organised supplies of food, supplies of, of drinking water uh, uh, or, or drinking uh, beer, probably in most cases, um, and, and so on. So, um, so navies take a lot of organising, um, uh, but also navies are uh, harder just to call into being when you need them than armies are. Uh, so the English at least think that you can take uh, people who are working on a farm all year and say, you've been doing your archery practice, haven't you? You're in the army for the next few months and that seems to work all right. Um, you, they do try taking trading ships and just putting some guns on them. Um, but increasingly, uh, the, they, those kinds of ships are not able to compete with ships built um, deliberately for large scale gunnery. Uh, and one of the key technical innovations there is the invention of the gun port, which enables you to have cannon lower down on a ship and fire them uh, so you can have heavier cannon without unbalancing the ship by firing the, the, the cannon. Um, 
And there are experiments in ship design. So Henry VIII builds a lot of ships in the first half of the 16th century. Many of them are rather uh, large and high in the water and uh, un unwieldy, have a lot of guns on. Um, the Mary Rose famously uh, sinks possibly because it's trying to turn too fast and a lot of water comes in through the gun ports while it's while it's trying to turn and fight at the same time. Um, the Elizabethan Navy, partly based on the experience of uh, sh English shipping trading more widely around the world, sailing into the Mediterranean, sailing to West Africa, uh, sailing to uh, attack or, or, or at least trade without permission uh, with the Spanish colonies uh, in, uh, in, in South and, and Central America. Um, they then change their ship designs to what are called race-built galleons, which are uh, longer and lower, um, very manoeuvrable, still very heavily gunned, uh, but much more uh, reliable and effective than the, uh, the, than the ships of, of Henry VIII's navy. Um, so the Elizabethan navy seems to have um, good technical um, capabilities, uh, as well as being quite well organised, uh, and that is put to the test because it's the main uh, means to defend England against attack from Spain, which is the greatest kingdom in, in Western Europe at the time in, in the Spanish Armada in, in 1588. Now, a few episodes ago, we talked about piracy and pirates, yeah. and that they were starting to build up in the late 1600s and 1700s, that were starting to get from a big problem that they were labelled terrorists. But was there piracy problems for the British Navy at this point in time, too, in late 1600s, maybe, or uh, in the yes. 1600s? Yes, there is. There's always a slightly um, uh, blurred line between piracy and privateering, because privateering is where your government or a government that you can get to do it has given you permission to go and attack foreign shipping as part of a war, uh, and piracy is where you're just attacking any ship you can find uh, on uh, on your own account. Uh, but of course, um, peace suddenly being made between two powers doesn't necessarily get through very quickly to the people who are sailing around attacking shipping. So you might find, that and there were no internet back then. Exactly, no internet. So, you, so you might well have have left port as a privateer and actually come back to be told you're now a pirate. Um, there's certainly also signs that uh, in um, in Elizabeth's reign, uh, there are uh, officials in charge of uh, different ports in England and Wales who are really turning a blind eye to piracy. Um, so these seem to be people who are very uh, happy to take a cut of the profits of uh, people who sail out of their port, capture shipping without really bothering too much whether they're enemy ships or not, and then come back and and, and sell things. Um, so uh, there's a so there is a piracy problem, but there's also particularly in the Elizabethan War against Spain uh, a really major privateering industry. Um, when war breaks out between England and Spain, uh, English imports, for example, of sugar, which is brought in by the Spanish and Portuguese from their colonies uh, and trading posts. Uh, around, around the world, English imports of sugar drop, but then sufficient sugar is captured from Spanish and Portuguese ships to make up for the sugar that isn't being legally imported anymore. Um, so, uh, so that Elizabethan privateering um, enterprise 
is is large scale and pretty successful and some of it indeed generates the capital that then goes into founding the east india company which becomes the big uh, english trading company to uh, to the far east in the uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries and actually ends up establishing its own rule over large areas of, of india so the so the, the 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 startup capital if you like for the east india company is partly generated by elizabethan privateering um so that's what the English are doing as, as pirates and privateers. They also, of course, face pirates and privateers from uh, other places that early in the century or in the later 15th century, there seem to be particular problems with people from Brittany, um, uh, partly because of the way the prevailing winds in the English Channel are. Um, so if you set out from Brittany, uh, you have southwestern winds to take you up into the Channel to attack English shipping um, in a way that the English shipping don't find it very easy to get away from you. Um, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so the English face up to, uh, to, to pirates and privateers too. Hmm. And what was life for na- Navy soldier life to, in the 1600s on board a ship, daily life, if you um, have a chance of that? I think, um, well, again, um, discipline uh, is, is pretty harsh, as it has to be to keep a Navy sailing uh, effectively. Um uh, we've got a lot of insight into the practicalities of life on board ships from all the finds on the Mary Rose. Um, so we know uh, what kind of um, plates uh, people are eating off, what kind of cups they're drinking from. Uh, we know what kind of games they're playing. We know what uh, equipment the um, surgeons, the medical staff on board the ship uh, have to use uh, and, uh, and, and so on. And we know again from the skeletons that many of the uh, sailors have uh, injuries to their knees and ankles, presumably from falling on ships or 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 um, or um, coming down out of the rigging or or, or whatever. Um, so, um, but there's still quite large areas of life on 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 board ship, which again I think are probably quite hard to uh, hard hard to um, to work out really exactly how things. Uh, exactly now, the movie is set a few hundred years later, so the technology and ship ship is a little bit different back then. But I want to ask Master Commander, would you say that kind of is accurate portrayal of what even by in the 16th century what life as a navy soldier would be like? Um so, so far as I know, I don't really uh I, I, I don't I, I haven't I haven't watched Master and Commander and I don't um uh, I don't uh, uh um uh, you know, know so much about the 18th and 19th century uh, navies. I can remember, as I said, as a small Sorry. boy, I used to read uh, C.S. Forrester's Hornblower novels. I remember my mother being horrified when I was I was banging my bread on the uh, on, on on the plate, <laughs> and she said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm not weevils knocking the weevils out of my bread because I, having just read that that was what you did in the in the navy in 1800, I thought I'd have a go." Uh, no, f- thankfully, no weevils came out of my bread when I uh, when I did that. So you have no evil in you then. Nope, that's right. That's right. Um, I wanted to talk about the ranks a little bit uh, and uh, how how you would well rise. You mentioned that it's again that it wasn't a permanent position, but if you were a career soldier, how would you go on about rising in the army and get higher rank? Was there military academies for this? And again, I want to compare to the Roman army, where the only the rich could be generals. And the richest was held the highest position. Was this the case in the British Army in the 16th century as well? That on the rich could be the highest, the highest rank as a general or commander, or was there chance that a love life soldier who was a career soldier could rise to eventually become a general? 
the, the, the leading command positions are all given to people at the top end of the social hierarchy. And that's partly, of course, because they're their political positions, so so positions uh, in advising the king and and leading the country, were generally given to those of of, of high birth, um, and um, uh, and and the command of an army, particularly a large army uh, against France, is a major political prize. So so great noblemen are very pleased to be asked by the king to to go and lead uh, an army, um, partly because uh, if it works well that's great for their reputation and the king will be pleased with them and, and give them lots of of reward but also because because of the way the army is organized um if, if you're put in command you have lots of jobs to distribute to your friends and relations so this is a major fund of uh, reward that you can hand out to people that you want to you want to encourage and if it goes well again for example you can uh knight uh, uh your friends and relations who've been serving as captains under you and that raises their social status and if they've done well the king might grant them uh, another title or grant them some lands or, or, or whatever so so in some senses war is a major political uh, operation um, and a major political um, source of uh, source of spoils source of uh, source of, of, of advancement um, so from that point of view um, military command goes with social rank there are some historians who will argue, and I think it's probably true, that in some ways in 16th century circumstances, that also makes sense because aristocrats are the kind of people who are used to giving people orders mm. and just expecting people to carry them out. Um, and other people are used to aristocrats giving them orders. So uh, just as in popular rebellions in the 16th century, often people, uh, the, the, the popular rebels, they don't complain about the fact that great noblemen are running the country. They complain about the people who are not great noblemen who are running the country, because the assumption is, if you've risen up by your talent, then you must be corrupt because you must be on the make. Um, and probably you're not a very suitable person to be put in charge. Whereas if you're a great nobleman, you're so rich that you don't have to be corrupt. Um, so, uh, so, so possibly there's, there's acceptance for um, uh, the, the, the command uh, by great aristocrats, uh, e even by people lower down uh, in, in society and lower down in the army. On the other hand, there are... Um, Clearly, people who uh, serve for a long period and gain experience and thereby gain influence and, um, and position within the army, not high command, but somebody like Ellis Griffith, again, he's worked his way up, gaining more experience until the point where he's, uh, again, the kind of position that you'd think of in a modern army as a sergeant major or that, that sort of uh, situation. Um, and similarly, um, particularly as the 16th century goes on, uh, it's interesting that the, the, the title captain starts to be used more. Uh, so nobody would call you uh, Captain Smith uh, or, uh, or, or, uh, or Captain Brown or whatever in, in the 1520s or 30s, whereas by the 1570s and 80s, that title for um, someone who's uh, main social distinction is that they're a military a, a, a military commander at sort of company level that that starts to be used so that suggests that there is a sense that there are some people whose whose job is to be uh, a, a lower ranking military commander in the way that there are some people whose job is to be 
a lawyer, even though they're not one of the top judges in the top courts, or mm -hmm. some people whose job is to be a financial official, even though they're not the Lord Treasurer in charge of uh, in charge of the king's finances. Um, so, so, so there is a, a measure of professionalization there. And by the late 16th and early 17th centuries, you start to get interesting clashes uh, over the militia, which is the local defense force, where the local aristocrats think they should be in command of it. And, and in practice, they are in command of it because um, everybody locally knows who they are and everybody locally will do what they say. On the other hand, they don't actually necessarily have much military experience or know much about modern weapons uh, and that kind of thing. So in the, in the 1630s, King Charles I wants what he calls an exact militia. He wants to reform the militia and make it more uh, efficient and, and, and modern. And he gets uh, himself into difficulties, really, because he'll send experienced old soldiers, but who don't have much social respect locally, in to try to explain to these gentlemen how you're supposed to do things. Um, and the gentlemen won't really take it very kindly because they don't like being shown up in front of all their neighbours and the tenants who farm their lands and so on by um, some old chap with one leg who happens to have been in the wars in the Netherlands and actually does understand what you can and can't do with a musket in the way that some of these aristocrats don't. So there is there is tension that you can that you can see there. Yeah, and we talked about this in the Roman Army episode, and Adrian Dolsworth said exactly the same that when you come from a rich farm, farming family in the Roman, in the Rome, in a rich Roman aristocratic family, then you used to giving commands, and that's he said exactly the same as you did that they have experience giving command and, and like a peasant to put it that way. Mm -hmm. that, so he said exactly the same thing that you did that he would have experience, whereas a common soldier would not. The other thing about noblemen is that they do realise, after all, um, being uh, a noble politician is a very competitive business, as it is in, in, in Roman times. And therefore, if you want to get ahead, you have to make sure you're good at what you do and, and you can take your opportunities. So you'll see noblemen uh, and the Earl of Essex in Elizabeth's reign would be a good example of this, who set themselves to study war and find out how to be a really successful commander um, uh, because they realise that doing it well and, and also having the respect of people who are military experts uh, is going to be important to building a successful career. Uh, so, uh, so I think we shouldn't think that aristocrats think, oh, well, I'll be fine because I'm an aristocrat and my ancestors were really good at this, so I'm sure I'll find it very easy. They, they study and work hard to think, how am I going to be an effective commander, uh, e even as the technology of war is changing and the, uh, and the circumstances of war are changing. And I want to talk about what's what when you first were in ranked in the army and then as a general, what what was life like for when you came both off the battlefield and I'm talking off the battle, not necessarily in battle, but in a military camp or on the on the march? What was it like for a military commander? Um well I think it's it's quite comfortable in that uh, you make sure that you've got some good food with you. You 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 probably you, you're riding quite a nice, comfortable horse, and you've probably got several spare horses if you need them. Um, you've got servants with you who will try and make sure that you're all right, just as they would if you were if you were at home. Um, on the other hand, uh, some of these aristocrats make uh, 
great play of the fact that, that they've suffered alongside their soldiers. Um, numbers of them, uh, somebody like um, the, uh, the, the Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Hertford, who becomes Duke of Somerset, who's one of Henry VIII's leading commanders uh, uh, in his wars against Scotland, and then carries on commanding in the war against Scotland under Edward VI. He will take a spade and go and dig trenches along with the troops in order to show that he's as committed to the success of what they're doing as they are. And even though um, if he was riding around inspecting his fields, he wouldn't get off his horse and start digging with his peasants, because obviously that's not what you do if you're an aristocrat. When you're in, in, in the army and you're all trying to survive together, you all go and dig together. Um, and you can It reminds me of the joke from Monty Python. He must be a king. He hasn't got shit on himself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but if you're if you're um, if you're the Duke of Somerset, and you can see uh, commanders uh, in in other European armies at the time, people like um, pe- people like uh, uh, some of the, some of the uh, noblemen in the Netherlands. I think William of Orange does this. They will go deliberately and and dig with the soldiers to say, "No, look, we're all in this." together and in the same way there's um a a a royal financial official uh who is um touring around the army in ireland uh in the uh i think it's in the 1530s or 40s uh and obviously uh thinks that he ought to be able to live in a more comfortable style than most of the soldiers are doing and one of the uh captains just uh tears a strip off him and and saying well he's seen the Duke of Suffolk and the Duke of Norfolk and the greatest nobleman in England just uh, living in hard circumstances like the soldiers when they're all on campaign together. And, and, and if they're prepared to do it, then this uh, financial official should jolly well do the same. So, so there is a sort of um, we're all in this together and it's hard being a soldier, but you've got to put up with it. And I'm putting up with it, despite the fact that I'm a Duke or an Earl or whatever. There's, there's a bit of that going on in the army. Yeah, and again, I'm going to compare a lot of ancient Rome here because that's kind of my strong suit, I would say. And Hadrian would as well go, Emperor Hadrian would mm-hmm. work and live like a sol- common soldier as, it, as he was a commoner. Yep. And at last, I want to talk about common, I, I don't know, again, what the common soldier, what's, what was life for him was much like, we talked a little bit about Again, we talked about the discipline and the camp life, but can we talk a little bit more about this, perhaps? Yes. In theory, well, when when the supply systems worked, the, the food was quite good, I think, by 16th century standards. Um, so it, it, it's uh, uh, maybe forgetting the numbers, but it's something like uh, a, a, a pound of beef a day uh, and uh, and plenty of bread and up to eight pints of beer. The beer is quite weak, I think. Um, but um, uh, uh, it's um, it, it's uh, it, it would certainly be plenty of food to keep yourself going on, even if you were doing quite a lot of physical activity. The problem, of course, is that the supply system doesn't always get the food through to them. Uh, but when it does, uh, the, the, the food is quite good. The wages are not great. Um, sixpence a day, uh, six, sixpence in, in old English pence. So that would be two and a half English pence now. Obviously, that will buy a lot more in the 16th century than it would buy now. Um, but it's uh, so, so at the start of the 16th century, that would be quite a good wage by the standards of um, building workers or, or agricultural labourers or people like that. But the wage stays the same through the 16th century, uh, or for, at least for much of it, which means that it's it's becoming less and less uh, convincing as a, as, as a wage to be paid. 
Um, so, uh, so those conditions are, are not bad. Um, and in other ways, uh, I think an awful lot just depends on where you are and what's happening. Um, so uh, bad weather can uh, devastate armies and even worse than that disease can devastate armies um, there's one campaign in particular in 1557 where we have records for how many of the english army are available for service at different points of the campaign and they they include uh not just people who are fit to fight but also people who would be fit to fight if they weren't ill and you can see uh, and there's a there's a, a some kind of bad epidemic we're not exactly sure what going through the army indeed going through the whole of western europe at that time and very large numbers of people are just knocked out by it in that case we don't know how many recover um th there's a bad outbreak of, of plague probably bu bubonic plague uh when the english army briefly occupies le havre in france in in, in the early 1560s uh, and there we do know that very large numbers die of plague. And indeed, the army comes back to Portsmouth, the, the port on the south coast uh, to which they're returning. And then you can see the, the deaths and the burials in Portsmouth going right up because so many people have caught plague from the army. So, so disease is always going to kill more soldiers, probably, than enemy action is. Um, would it be often that you would work without in the army without even seeing a fight or was it? rare that you would be in the army and not experience a battle at all um well battles are quite rare uh there are there are some very big battles particularly between the english and the scots um flodden uh, in 1513 uh, is very big pinky uh, in 1547 uh, is is very big um there aren't such big battles between the english and the french um as there had been in the 14th and 15th centuries so if you're on campaign, you're likely to see some kind of combat, but it's much more likely to be um, uh, uh, fighting against small detachments of the other army or fighting in a siege, quite a lot of sieges, uh, or fighting um, against peasants who are trying to stop you taking their cattle or taking their crops or whatever it is you're trying to take from them in order to, to feed yourselves. Um, so, you, so I think if you're, in, if you're on a campaign, you're quite likely to see fighting of some sort, but... The, the, the variety will change and you're not very likely to see uh, a, a really big battle, um, which does mean that as in the Middle Ages, really, really big battles are very memorable things. And people talk about Flodden for years and years afterwards. And indeed, you can see people in uh, legal cases dating events by whether they were before or after the Battle of Flodden, because they just remember it as a really big event. Uh, in in their life and in the life of local society and you can see why when you start to look at the size of the English army because um, in 1513 because there's a big army in France besieging uh, Terouanne and Tournay uh, as well as well as this army fighting the Scots at Flodden um, maybe one in ten adult men is fighting in the army so that's enough that most people probably knew somebody that's quite a that's quite a speculative argument but but probably if one in ten adult men are fighting most people in the country know somebody who's been in the army in 1513 and um, i asked this as well in the roman army episode and um, was there rare cases of ptsd in the british army as well or was that not as common it's it's very hard to know 
Um, there are certainly people who uh, come out with uh, with major wounds, which they talk about physical wounds. Um, uh, and in some cases, people who are quite proud of their physical wounds because they because they they're taken to show that they've fought in a very courageous way. Um, psychological damage is just much harder to detect, really. Um, and it's not clear whether uh, people aren't talking about it or whether that they um, whether they aren't experiencing it in quite the same way. And of course, there are there are influential arguments that um, warfare in the 16th century, as in the Middle Ages, is just less different from everyday life than uh, than it than it's become in the in the 19th and 20th, in particular 20th centuries, um, because Although um, although battles are very loud, they're nothing like as loud as they become in the in in the twentieth century. Um, although uh, people see death a lot on the battlefield, they see death a lot in major plague outbreaks that can take out uh, a, a third or a quarter of the population of a town. Um, uh, people see a lot of blood. Uh, in battles, but they see a lot of blood in um, agricultural accidents, uh, in um, in in uh, killing animals all the time, and and so on. So, so we mustn't get too carried away with those arguments and say, oh well, um, people barely noticed war because it was just like uh, a rough Saturday night. I think that's nonsense. Um, but to say that some of the things that people find very uh, new recruits, in particular, find very shocking about twentieth century war. Um, are, are not as shocking probably in the in the 16th century. And there's an interesting argument to this effect in um, uh, Yuval Harari's work, who, who uh, before he wrote his his big general books like like Sapiens, he worked on um, military memoirs in the 16th century, um, and he points out that 16th century military memoirists don't say a lot of the things that we all expect to read in 20th and 21st century military memoirs about how war was a shock because it was nothing like they expected it to be because it was nothing like in the movies uh, and so on. 16th century people seem to be much more matter of fact about war. Now, is that just because it's their culture to be matter of fact about things? Or is it because in some ways war is less alien to them than um, than uh, it is to people taken into the army in the 20th century? My brother was it worked for the army, worked for the army, and he was sent to Lithuania. And there, they only we figured they only PTSD who will have there is the food. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for coming. I think we covered the basic of uh, British military in the 16th century. It was super interesting, and I appreciate you taking the time for coming on. And uh, before you go, do you have any social media or anything you wish to promote that you want me to put in the description? Uh, uh, nothing special. My book on the English people at war in the age of Henry VIII is now in paperback. So if people want to read that, uh, th- that's there. Um, and our current research project is this work on uh, accidental death and everyday life in the 16th century. So if people just search for uh, Oxford Tudor accidents, they'll, uh, they'll find us there. And there's some stuff about firearms and, and other weapons uh, on there, as well as all kinds of other aspects of 16th century life that we can look at through, uh, through the lens of accidental death. What do you think of Blackadder when we first started? Sorry? How, how accurate is Blackadder? Oh, uh, well, it, it's um, it, it, the jokes work because uh, they 
capture some bits of 16th century life very well. Um, but historians always say things like this, don't they? Then there are bits where you think, oh, no, that's not right at all. So, for example, the, the, the Puritan, um, are they uncle and aunt, I think, that, that, that Blackadder has? Uh, in some ways, they're very funny, but actually, um, I think they're covered with crosses, which most Puritans would find absolutely uh, horrendous because uh, they, they think the sign of the cross is, is, is potentially um, superstitious. Um, so, uh, so, there, so there are bits where you think, oh, no, I'm not sure that's right. And then other bits which, uh, which you think, yep, that's, that's wonderful. It's probably um, a problem, isn't it, with, uh, with mm. knowing too much about something? Because I, I find the 18th century version of Blackadder uproariously funny, partly because I don't know quite so much about the 18th century. So, um, so a little knowledge. It kind of ruins it, doesn't it, when you're studying an era that kind of ruined the, the show. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And uh, my name is Alan. We are available on social media and well.h2l on Instagram. And uh, we are, our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find us. And please like, share, and subscribe. We just something for everyone on this podcast if you like history from the Ottoman Empire to pirates to recent history. And you should definitely find something that you like if you like are a fan of history. Next week, we are joined by Al Mutadima to talk about the rise of Islam, which will be fascinating. And um, yeah, my name is Alan. This has been Well That Aged Well. And I'll see you next time.